Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hi, Lucy. Hi, Alex. How are you doing? I'm fine. Welcome back. I had the you. chaps with me. You did. Week. You did. They and it were all went excellent. splendidly. They did not stop beetling around town, recording booker winners. I mean, all sorts. They were amazing. But I'm very glad to have you back. Well, I'm very glad to be back. There's lots going on, isn't there, actually? Mm. There's lots of things happening culturally, bookishly. I did want to mention there's a that the South Bank's got a literary festival on at the moment, and there's a couple of events. I think the climate emergency might be a theme, or one of the themes of it, I think. And on Saturday, there is a, an event with Jesse Greengrass and Daisy Hildyard called Emergencies. Daisy Hildyard writes for the TLS, lots very, very good. I think that would be jolly good. And then on the 30th... Someone that you might have heard of, Greta Thunberg, who's written a book. You'll never guess oh. what it's about. Oh, yes, I have. Yes, <laughs> you have heard of her. She's got a thing called a climate event on Sunday the 30th at 8 o'clock, which I think is free for anyone to stream, I think. Yes, because I myself probably won't be making the journey from Ireland to the South Bank in London and others outside London might not either. But you can stream it and I will stream it. Yeah, I think it will be it will be jolly interesting. What else is going on, Alex? It has, as we know, been all changed at the top of the political totem pole. Mm. But I did notice the effect. Well, who knows what's affected it? But the Arts Council should have been announcing their round of funding in a particular section of their funding, I think, this week. And they've paused it. And it seems to be because things are changing so much in government, although Michelle Donnellan, the, the Secretary of State at DCMS, has been confirmed in her job. So it's not a change in that actual office. She had taken over from Nadine Doris at the beginning of September. Mm. But it does seem to be something to do with the various changes in government. And it's obviously a horrible time for people who've been waiting to find cultural organisations, who've been waiting mm. to find out whether they're going to get, you know, really critical funding, because it comes in kind of I think three-year blocks, doesn't it? 
so to be announced when it will be announced and when they'll be as it were put out of their misery i see so it was supposed to be this week and now it's yeah we don't know when it is now we don't know and basically you know postponed sort of at a day's notice so okay. it's very peculiar and very worrying i'm sure for people working within the arts council mm. and also for people who are depending on it yeah Maybe it's because the budget statement's been put back. That's now been put back about two weeks, isn't it? So maybe maybe it is because of that. But yes, everyone is going to be kind of biting their fingernails, aren't they, to find out? Listeners, do join us next week on the podcast for more incisive commentary from the heart of government. <laughs> As basically Lucy and I just, we, we don't know what's happening, yeah. but we're quite worried about it and certainly want to send our support. Is that fair, Lucy? That is fair. Yeah, that's very fair. Funnily enough, we are talking about power and the corridors thereof an awful lot on this week's podcast, aren't we? Yes, we are. That's true. Coming up on this week's show, Alan Forrest explores the final years of Napoleon Bonaparte and explains how his empire reshaped European politics and society. And Andrew Martin helps us to push open the door of some of the country's most celebrated private members clubs and its working men's clubs. But first, here are the words of Emmanuel Macron, President of the French Republic, and he was describing someone last year on May the 5th. Eagle and Ogre, Alexander the Great and Nero, the incarnation of liberty as much as of police repression, he could in fact be at the same time the soul of the world, as he was described by Hegel at Iena, and the demon of Europe. Three guesses as to who he's talking about. Yeah. It is Napoleon Bonaparte, whose shadow still looms large over Europe 200 years after his death. The final volume of a three-part biography by Michael Brewers has recently been published, as well as a book counterintuitively called Napoleon at Peace by William Doyle. And writing about them for us and making sense of the man and his empire is Alan Forrest, who probably now knows more about Napoleon than he did himself. So we're very delighted to have him with us. Many thanks for joining us, Alan. Thank you. That extract from Macron's speech that I quoted, it illustrates how divisive he still is in France, doesn't it? Which is a point that you make early on in your piece. Indeed. He is seen, obviously, as being divisive across Europe, as on the whole, the countries that lined up against him tended to denounce him as a, as a usurper. But inside France as well, you're quite right, the legacy is, is a very divided one. Partly, I think, because the period in question the period of the French Revolution and the empire, created new polities which were themselves deeply divisive. They united some people behind them, but they also created enemies of those whom they oppressed. So that, for instance, royalists, and there were substantial numbers of royalists in, in some of the regions of France, um, royalists would accept neither the revolution nor the empire as being legitimate. Jacobins or former Jacobins were Republican. They didn't want an empire. So, so once you get to 1815 and the, and the Restoration, you've already created a number of conflicting political traditions, some of which are extremely appreciative of Napoleon, particularly among his former soldiers, others of which cannot forgive him for what they see as the crimes that he had committed, either against the church, against royalists and the nobility, or indeed against the civic ideals of the French Republic. Napoleon himself, you say this as well, he was very aware of history and myth himself, wouldn't he? And he used to compare himself to Alexander the Great and Hannibal. You wouldn't have thought that Hannibal would be a great person to compare himself against, but he meant <laughs> militarily, did he? Yes. And he was, of course, fundamentally 
particularly in his younger days, he was fundamentally talking as a soldier, as a, as a military leader. He read surprisingly widely, all right, perhaps it was the end of the Enlightenment in the 1770s and 1780s when he was young. He read philosophy, French philosophy. He read the classics. Extraordinary, I think, when he went into battle, even as emperor, he would take various goods and chattels along with him for his comfort, but they included quite a substantial library of several hundred books. Yes, he read, and he read history, and he read classical history, and he took pride, I think, and, and pleasure in drawing from the experiences of emperors in the past. Napoleon was very clear, an emperor was not a king. An emperor was above any single monarch, and indeed he made and unmade kings across uh, Central Europe, for instance, in the period from, say, 1805 to 1809. Napoleon was an emperor, and he compared himself to other emperors. He looked at past empires. He saw their rise to prominence. He also, I think, understood their decline and was rather fearful that his own empire must avoid that fate. But in a way, Napoleon the emperor, Napoleon the political figure, and Napoleon the reader of history are the same person. It's interesting, isn't it, with, you know, this kind of call that the past appears to have to men throughout history who seek to sort of elevate themselves, as it were, and to lead society. I mean, they often fail to see what's actually happening on the ground around them, don't they? They often fail to grasp the kind of details of contemporary social and political life, I suppose, because they've kind of immersed themselves in the idea of this very grand tradition. I think in France at this particular moment, it's, it's even more complex because the revolution had taken place immediately before and Napoleon was part of that revolution. He was a revolutionary officer. He was promoted to being a revolutionary general and revolutionary generals could be fairly political figures as well. So he had lived through the revolution. He had taken note of the good things, if you like, the development of some sort of representative government, the forms to administration and to justice, the good things that the revolution had achieved. But he was also intensely aware what he saw as the excesses that it had produced in terms of, shall we say, violence, in terms of terror, in terms of division within the country. And he was determined, in a sense, as emperor, to bring all that to an end. He talks about ending the revolution, although like much of what Napoleon says, it is open to interpretation. Does that mean stopping the revolution, preventing France from being a revolutionary society? Does it mean going back to the Ancien Regime and what had happened before? Or does it simply mean stopping the violence, stopping the antagonism, settling the, the system down so that he could be the emperor of a stable regime? I think it means a second. But yes, he read history. He possibly misjudged the world around him to a degree, but he was viewing it very much through the eyes of someone who had been a revolutionary when he was young and was rather frightened of the excesses of mob violence and popular insurrection, which the revolution had uh, given rise to. Perhaps he didn't study the conservative figures around him quite as much as he should have done. He certainly underestimated various of the diplomatic figures, Metternich, for instance, he underestimated Alexander I of Russia very badly. Um, and, and these things came to haunt him in the later period of his, of his empire, that is the period that Michael Boas is studying in this third volume.
Do you say that since his accession to power, that this kind of amazing unstoppable rise when he seems to be winning everything and then around, I think it's when the book begins, isn't it, about 1811, that he's sort of at his peak, as it were. But the balance of power in Europe had changed since that accession. People had kind of grown wise to certain things just from fighting him over the past decade. But in a political sense, was it his continental system? Was that partly responsible? Can you tell us about that? I think it was very largely responsible. But that itself is a, a strangely ambitious ploy by Napoleon. It's curious, you, you make war in various ways. You, you make war, obviously, with armies and with physical conflicts and violence. But you also make war diplomatically, through colonies, and economically, through trade. And these were things that Britain was particularly strongly positioned to exploit. And France, I would suggest, less so. The 18th century, after all, had seen Britain gain colonies in a series of wars with colonial wars with France. It gained territory in North America, they gained territory in the Caribbean, in the Indian Ocean, and so on. The French Navy had never been its strongest arm, which is not to say it didn't put a lot of money into the Navy. It's more to say that the quality of the French Navy never really matched that of Britain, and the number of ships never matched that of Britain either. France was caught. It was a continental power. It had to build up its land army in order to defend its frontiers. But also, if it wanted to be a colonial power, it had to build up its naval strength. And that double investment would prove terribly costly. It was one of the things that possibly brought Louis XVI's monarchy to the brink of bankruptcy in the 1780s. So in a way, he's taking on something terribly, terribly ambitious. And the continental system was his way of getting back at Britain. He reckoned that if you could destroy British trade, cut British links with her colonies, then the Houses of Parliament, which were controlled to some extent by landowners and merchants and other vested interests, would rise up against the government and would halt the war with France. I think that may be a slightly exaggerated view of his vision, but it followed these general lines. It failed, of course, and it mm. failed partly because he was unable to persuade, or indeed bully, allies in Europe into enforcing the continental system. I mean, for Russia, for instance, whom he tried to persuade to do it, it would have meant giving up not just export of timber to Britain, which was important, but also the use of British ships for carrying Russian goods across the Baltic, which would have been fairly disastrous for Russia's exports. I mean, Russia couldn't accept that without inflicting immense self-harm on its population. Mm. That's just one example. But again and again, Napoleon seems to have overestimated his own strength in this commercial area. And indeed, we know that to some extent, in order to keep his own army supplied and his, his own town supplied, he was willing to break the blockade of Britain as well, and it suited him to do so. Mm. So I think the continental system, because he stuck to it so rigidly, lost him allies, forced some of the states with whom, with whom he had had agreements and alliances to move over to the other side by 1813, when it was obvious that he was no longer piling victory on victory, and indeed did a great deal of harm to the merchant community and to the commercial interests of France itself. What then started his downfall? What was the sort of contributory? But was it something that started on the battlefield? It's a very good question, because a lot of what he had done in the period from, say, 1803 to 1809 or thereabouts 
had looked almost unstoppable. And it's one of the things that Poe's does very well in his book is to is to bring out the balance between uh, military ambition on the one hand and administrative, judicial, internal reforms and achievements on the other. He would lead a campaign, he would win a battle, he'd rush back to Paris, he'd sort out various of the domestic problems of the day and energetically rush back to the army once again. It looks like a sort of recipe for constant advancement, constant development. And you ask yourself whether in a way the two, that is to say, military conquest and administrative reform, the prosperity of France, whether these were not all bound up together. By taking over extra land, he had extra conscripts at his disposal, he had extra tax revenues to bring home to help pay for his other policies. It all seemed to be interwoven to some degree. And then after about 89, all this stops. There aren't any more really successful campaigns leading to definitive battles in his favor. And the 1812 campaign to Russia might seem to many people to be utterly insane. I mean, up to this point, he had been, on the whole, invading a piece of, of, of land and then annexing it or making it into an, a sort of subsidiary kingdom or public linked to France. It was extending the empire. And then he extended his rule. That's very much on the model, as you say, of the other emperors. That's what the Roman emperors did, isn't it? They would go for a piece of land and then have it as a sort of subsidiary and say, OK, you're citizens, more or less. We're more or less on the same side. And you're with us now. That's right. And as you say, you're citizens now. You get benefits from this. There are advantages because many of these states in Central and Eastern Europe had had feudal structures and no representative government of, of any form. So he could make the point, I think, quite legitimately, that he was giving people benefits through connections to his empire. But you don't invade a, a land as far away from France and as huge in land area as Russia with the aim of annexing it. I mean, that was never plausible. That campaign was carried out, as far as one can judge, in order to punish Alexander I, to punish the emperor, for his disobedience in not agreeing to the continental system. It goes back to your previous question. His insistence on the continental system led him to doing something that many people, even at the time, thought was militarily insane. And he assembled this enormous army of 650, 700,000 men to march east in order to punish Alexander. And we know, of course, what happened. But remember, Russia wasn't just a nation state. Russia was an empire too. It had been making its additions in the 18th century is all very topical today. It had annexed uh, Crimea, it had annexed Ukraine. It had been building up its land empire in Eastern Europe in the 1770s and 1780s, in the period immediately before the revolution. It was a, an expansionist power in the same way that France was an expansionist power. The campaign, I think, was ill-conceived from the start. I know people will always say that had he left Moscow two weeks earlier and avoided the snows, he would have got back safely. I'm not sure that's true. It underestimates the Russian army and the determination of Russian soldiers to protect the motherland. But essentially, from that moment onwards, he, he lost an entire army. The army he created for the campaigns in 1813 and 14 was much younger, was much less experienced. It had less experienced officers. It had marshals, arguably of poorer quality, than in the earlier period. I think 1812 is the turning point. And from that point onwards, really, it's a series of defensive uh, wars in which he is being increasingly pushed back until in 1814, he's on French territory. 
well, people say it centres around the Battle of Borodino, don't they? And I was thinking, especially from a literary point of view, he's such a huge figure, Napoleon, not just history, but in literature, so much of war and peace. That's what war and peace is about. It's about him going forwards and then being beaten and then going back. And there's an enormous amount about Napoleon. And we just sort of think, oh, yes, that's war and peace. That's fiction. But it isn't. (laughs) That sense of him as a figure in exile is huge as a kind of literary sort of presence, isn't it? Yeah, I think if we move forward to his legacy, if you like, to the memory of Napoleon in the 19th century, yes, you're right. He is a dominant figure. He may be defeated in 1814, he may be sent to Elba, and then there was the sort of incredible adventure of his return to France, his escape from Elba at the Hundred Days, Mm. his final defeat at Waterloo, and then his exile to an abandoned storm-blasted rock in the South Atlantic at uh, St. Helena. It appeals to the romantic consciousness of the 19th century, and as you say, Napoleon plays a a very large part in, in literature. I mean, not just French literature, Balzac, Victor Hugo. Hugo's father, of course, had been a Napoleonic general himself. I mean, in France, it's quite understandable that the legacy is a, is a long one, the lasting one, but also in the other countries. Russia, as you say, the War of 1812 for Russians is the first patriotic war. It is the first time that a Western army had invaded Russia with the intention of defeating it and had been repulsed. The second time will be Hitler the second great patriotic war in 1940. It is a mythical moment almost, a legendary moment. But also in Britain, if you look at, say, Walter Scott writing a biography of Napoleon, the key literary figures of the time were fascinated by him. They may have found him terrifying and and repulsive and an ogre with whom to frighten their children to make sure they go to bed at night. But at the same time, he was the dominant figure of his generation. And he left much more of a legacy in that sense, I think, on European culture than the people who had defeated him. He was basically constantly arming himself and sort of making threats, wasn't he? And and during that time, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, actually, partly in the revolution, but also this continued onto him, a lot of the reforms they made. We were talking about it in terms of measurement that they introduced the metric system and imposed order on what had been actually a fairly chaotic and rather arbitrary system and talking about the fact that they had even tried to remeasure time. And a lot of those reforms stuck. It doesn't sound very exciting to say, well, he did lots of administrative reforms. It's not as exciting as a, as a big battle, as it were. But they, a lot of them are still around, at least in remnants, aren't they? I think it is almost certainly his most important legacy. I mean, the, the wars achieved a certain amount in the short term. They built up an empire, but that empire has obviously been dissolved since, whereas many of the domestic reforms were permanent. They were, I should say, as much the revolutions doing as Napoleon's. In fact, Mm, generally rather more the revolutions doing. In the 1790s, yes, they wanted that enlightenment sense of rationality. They, They wanted to get rid of things that were tiresome and irrational and confusing and replace them with what they saw as a logical system. So it didn't really matter whether you were talking about measurement, the development of meters and kilometers and the rest, or talking about weights and measures, or talking about time. I mean, why on earth should time be divided into these strangely illogical units of 365 days and 24 hours and and the rest? Couldn't you impose a kind of rationality on time as well? I mean, it was the only one, I think, that didn't really work awfully well. 
in partly because France continued, of course, to trade with other nations, none of which adopted the revolutionary calendar. Uh, so it was simpler to get back to a, a system that was shared with the rest of the world. But even the reforms of time last from their introduction in the 1790s through to 1805, 1806. Such an extraordinary thing to try to do, isn't it? <laughs> to, to run your part of the world on a different time to everyone else's. Yes. They were logical yeah. about administrative division as well. You know, get rid of the old provinces, which are unequal in size, replace them with the modern département, which were theoretically at least equal in size and population. Although, if you think about that for a moment, it's unlikely to work between mountain areas and, say, the Paris Basin. But nonetheless, the principle was there. But they imposed that on the rest of the inner empire as well. So departments were created, there were 130 departments, by 1810, there had been mm. 84 back in, in France itself. Once they have developed a, an administrative system, a judicial system with cantons, a justice of the peace, local tribunals in industry. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's in departments. Once they have developed this sort of rational approach to time and space, they think they've solved a, an eternal problem and they, they try to impose it on the rest of Europe. I should say, bits of it survive. Northern Italy, for instance, is a place where quite a lot of the Napoleonic reforms were maintained after 1815. In other parts, the anti-imperial feeling was such that they were discarded almost immediately. Mm. As Alex says, it's just an, such an amazingly ambitious thing to do to reorder 
time and space. We can't reorder time because we have, that's a terrible link. I'm really sorry, but we have run out of time. <laughs> I, th- I thought it was rather fine. I was smoothly done. Smoothly done. Alan, I will just jump in and say thank you so much. I did say to you before we, we started chatting that my knowledge of Napoleon is woefully lacking. And it's really very much improved after talking to you. Thank you so much. Well, well, thank you. I've much enjoyed the chat. Thank you. Thank you very much. to come on the show. What do a Brexit sex dungeon and Phoenix Knights have in common? If you carry on listening, you will find out. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Welcome back. I'm Alex Clark. Now, if I say the word club to you, do you imagine one of what Seth Tebos calls the crumbling palaces of Pall Mall in his book Behind Closed Doors? Are you immediately wreathed in cigar smoke and the misdemeanors of cabinet ministers? Or do you think of warm beer, convivial laughter and the clock ticking towards the arrival of the night's cabaret? As you might find in one of the institutions described in Pete Brown's Clubland. The club, perhaps unsurprisingly, seems to function as a microcosm of British society. And here to tell us more is Andrew Martin. Welcome. Hello. First things first, I said British society, but do I mean English? And do I mean male society, I wonder? Um, As to the first question, I think you do mean English, but I couldn't give a very authoritative answer about that. Well, you did say to me you're not yourself a very clubbable person. I'm not clubbable, but I do observe clubs. I sometimes go to the RAC club in Pall Mall, which I tremendously enjoy, partly because I think, as Tevos points out, it's got the best swimming pool in, in London in its basement. I must say, though, that I always do feel that I'm on the point of committing some faux pas, you know, some infringement. Possibly using my mobile phone in the bar, I don't think that's allowed, or even carrying a newspaper into the bar. I'm not sure that's Was that, quite is that not done wearing the wrong socks with black shoes or the brown belt with black shoes or something? Yes, you don't want to wear brown in town, do you? And it's always those, there's often sort of very fierce looking men in little cubby holes at the entrance. Yeah, when you walk into the RAC, which I don't want to um, slander at all because I think it's very good, there are three big blokes in blazers who 
nod at you when you walk in and they better nod at you otherwise you might not get it they've come to know me a bit even though i'm not a member i just go there as a guest of of a member but devos does make the point about um etiquette that it has inhibited the clubs or at least it does today and probably they are more formal and more bound by etiquette today than they ever were he makes the point about dress codes that Summer rigging in a Pall Mall club back in the um, late 19th century might just have been what the blokes wore to play billiards. In other words, shirt sleeves, you know, no tie or even a jacket. Yeah, this was really fascinating to me about both of these books that you describe. And they're very different. One's the sort of club that you think of Lord Lucan and Bertie Wooster and the others, uh, the working men's clubs that flourish mainly in the north of England. Yes. But one thing you highlighted that seems common to both is that they are supposed to be or were originally supposed to be a kind of sanctuary and an alternative to other more sort of bustling places they weren't they didn't grow up sort of just to observe these rather exclusive rules did they are we talking about the gentlemen's clubs or the working men's clubs well both in a way but the gentlemen's clubs seem to be much more a thing just sort of of the coffee shop of the you know an alternative to the pub in a sense well tevos makes the point that the gentlemen's clubs even the ones that became very posh they basically grew out of pubs Mm. in the sort of mid or late uh, 17th century. And he makes the subtle point that it wasn't so much a matter of uniting, uh, getting together clubbable people in that rather cliquey way, but as the more the bar was set lower, it was to exclude the unclubbable. So they weren't sort of very snobbish or exclusive, that, at least that's the implication. But then perhaps they became more snobbish later, but Tevels stresses that the idea of the very decadent Georgian club where everybody was completely drunk on port all the time and they would gamble ferociously, you know, betting on which fly crawled across the window fastest or the speed of a raindrop falling on the window or something like that. He says that's all a bit overdone and overrated. That era of supposedly very decadent Georgian clubs, that's been slightly exaggerated. And then the big boom came in the 19th century with clubs for professionals. And the idea was you couldn't really do business with someone in Victorian England unless you'd been introduced to them. It's a bit like that poem by W.S. Gilbert called Etiquette, where two men washed up on a desert island, but they never speak to each other because they never <laughs> weren't introduced on the boat. But being in a club was tantamount to an introduction. Uh, it was the same thing. So, so that would be enough. And then you could do business in the clubs. And uh, I think the fact that that requirement has fallen away is one reason why the gentlemen's clubs are, are in decline. It's what, what you said about earlier about them excluding the unclubbable. It does seem to me, I mean, there's lots of ways in which, you know, clubs I'm sure are very nice and the working men's clubs um, I can understand a bit more. But it is all about who you keep out, though, isn't it? Whatever sort of club it is. The yeah. first category of person being women. Well, yes, women are still excluded from some of the gentlemen's clubs and I think a few of the working men's clubs as well, in spite of uh, equality legislation. And this is because it was not possible to legislate, to require men to include women in their clubs, because then you wouldn't be able to have women-only clubs, such as women's athletic or sports clubs. And clearly it is necessary to have those. So there's a kind of loophole uh, which allows women to continue to be excluded. But Devos's argument is that there was quite a healthy sort of wave of women's clubs in, in the 19th century. And they were 
uh, risk of being sort of seen as rather priggish because they would often have lectures and there was an educational element to them. They weren't just drinking pints of port and betting on flies. They were bettering, <laughs> bettering themselves the whole time. No, but he makes the point, and there wasn't enough room to put this in the review, which is a shame, but he makes the point that women's clubs were known to have fewer reclining chairs. They didn't have chaise longs. They didn't lie down. They just sat up straight in their chairs. No, that's because of deportment. You know, we always want to keep our backs rather nice and straight. We're not allowed to lounge around lest we get complacent, Andrew. I think that must be it. But they, I mean, the men in the men's clubs, in the posh men's clubs, did they never want a bit of lady company? Or did you go somewhere else for that? Straying into a different territory. Well, we are. It's a different kind of club I think I'm talking about. But you, I, I mean, I kind of can't imagine that women didn't sort of get in there somehow. Well, it's a bit blurred. I and mean, Thevos makes the point that early on in the 18th century, there would be some arrangement to, to sort of partner the, the men's clubs with women's salons. There might be a sort of adjacent salon going on. So it wasn't quite black and white. But I do think that, well, the majority of gentlemen's clubs now do admit women, I believe, and, and that's true of the working men's clubs as well. But for a long time in the working men's clubs, the women were second-class citizens and they were allowed in on Friday nights for the bingo or they would come in for the entertainment. Oh, I see. Or not just for the ordinary drinking and, and dominating. <laughs> not for the main business, as it were. It's the TLS, so we don't go in for too much personal reminiscence. But uh, my dad was a member of a working men's club in York, and he went there every Friday, and he was a widower. My mother had died when I was young. And um, I think that club was really useful to him. He obviously really enjoyed it. And he would come back, we'd have a babysitter every Friday evening, and he would come back from the club at 11 o'clock, and he would smell very slightly of beer, but only slightly, and cigarettes. And a point that Pete Brown makes, which I think is very interesting, is that although drinking beer is the main activity in a working men's club, that people don't get drunk there. It's a controlled, civilised environment for drinking. And he's got a very interesting passage where he compares working men's clubs to the gin palaces, you know, uh, very opulent and decadent and attractive pubs where people really did get slaughtered. And he says the working men's clubs are, are sort of plainer and more austere in a way. And perhaps it's the fact that people are talking means they're not drinking so mm. For your dad, was that why he went to that club rather than to his local pub? Was it that it just felt like a more sort of relaxed environment? I think his best friends were all in the club. And he would go there and say, I'd have a game doms. That's how he put it. In other words, playing dominoes. And he would play dominoes for money. Mm. I mean, he did gamble on horses as well, my dad. And even when I played him as a boy, dominoes, he'd always say, should we make it interesting? And <laughs> so there was the attraction of a bit of gambling. I don't think he was so into the entertainment side of it. In fact, I think on the Friday nights when he went, there were no turns, as, as they were called. It was just dominoes and beer. But um, Pete Brown's also very interesting about the, about the entertainment in the working men's clubs. And he makes he argues that the working men's clubs are not variety were the true perpetuators of music hall. In other words, the entertainment in the working men's clubs was a bit rackety, a bit mm. near the knuckle. Comedians were often blue, and mm. uh, it was all a bit racy in the way that the music halls had been. And he finds that attractive, and so do I. I mean, even though it, it threw up people like Bernard Manning. And he's very interesting about Batley Variety Club. And another northern memory of mine is that when on Friday nights on ITV, there would be an advert for Batley Variety Club. And it was not a film. It was just a series of still pictures mm. of this kind of cavernous 
theatre and it would say still spaces for tomorrow night at Batley. <laughs> it was basically an enormous working men's club. And it was purpose-built, wasn't it? It Purpose-built, so there were no pillars to block your view of the stage. And Batley Variety Club was a tremendous phenomenon. It was like brought Las Vegas to Batley. And Roy Orbison met his wife, and Morris Morris Gibb, I think, of the Bee Gees, married one of the waitresses. (laughs) So it was really the stuff that dreams are made of. It was the place to be. I must declare a personal connection here. I know the author of Clubland, Pete Brown. He's an old neighbour of mine when I lived in London. And in fact, his wife, who runs a, a local literary festival, when she had a significant birthday, shall we say, she had it in the local working men's club on Mild May Park in Stoke Newington. And so we all went there for her party. And they are very sort of unchanged spaces in some way, however much what goes on in them has changed. Some of the spaces are just terribly, they're not, they're not sort of posh, are they? I mean, Pete Brown went to visit a lot of them and found some of them quite utilitarian, didn't he? He went to one, I think it was in Sheffield, and the entertainment was, was it multiple TVs all showing now 80s or whatever it's called, a channel that plays 80s pop music. But he quite liked it because he liked the sort of austerity of it and the plainness of it. But he said it's still true that in, in many working men's clubs, the dominant, the soundtrack on any given evening is the clacking of dominoes. That's a lovely soundtrack, isn't it? I mean, in a way, you can I can see the appeal of going somewhere where it is OK to sit and drink gently and play a game and just hang out with... He does say that the working men's clubs have had... A, I mean, many of them are, are struggling and there are many fewer than they used to be, which is the mm. case with gentlemen's clubs as well. And he says that one problem that they have is they're not uh, aspirational by their very name, working mm. men's clubs. He talks about beer adverts and how the less... Because he's an expert on beer, is Pete Brown, and he says that the message of all beer advertising in recent years has been, don't drink what your dad drank. You know, so don't have a pint of mild. Yeah, have some new exotic type of beer. And again, that doesn't suit the working men's clubs. And he says that some of them have adapted. I mean, one of them in London runs the queer disco, I think. And then he talks to one woman in a club in London who decided to combine the bingo with the disco. I'm not quite sure how that works. But... <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> but it's interesting, isn't it, that both of these, you know, either end, as it were, of the sort of, class prism that kind of seems to just accompany every cultural artifact and space in British history. They are both in decline, aren't they? These super, super posh clubs that cost a fortune and these much more ordinary meeting places. I think there's been more of a sort of reinvention at the posher end because you have the club's empire of uh, Robin Burley and uh, Five Hartford Street, which is very fashionable amongst people who have more money than me, including a lot of leading Brexiteers, apparently. And, and there's a basement uh, club attached to that called Lulu's. And the Evening Standard called it the Brexit Sex Dungeon. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's very hard to imagine a worse place to go, isn't it? Well, yeah, it wouldn't be top of my, then I wouldn't get in anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's very much an argument for not being a clubbable sort, the idea of a Brexit sex dungeon. Yeah. I mean, but on the other hand, the Groucho Club, which is another aspect of the same thing, a kind of reinvention of the posh club that has loomed large even in my media life. I've never been a member, but I've been to to meet people there. And uh, I think the Groucho Club, I mean, its heyday was the 80s, but I, th- mm. I believe 
think it's still doing very well. So there are these sort of clubs with the media orientation. And I suppose it's back to the idea of a professional club and affecting an introduction to, albeit now to a TV producer rather than a banker. I think that there has been more liveliness on the posh club scene in a way than with the working men's clubs. Did you get the sense from Seth Tavis's book that a lot of politics is still done there? Because it makes the point that the Reform Act of 1832 really, you know, politicians needed to have a place to do deals and do business uh, and had to sort of, in a sense, professionalise by joining a club. That is a strong theme of this, that politics became professionalised as a result of, of the 1832 Reform Act. And he, he's done another book on that, a previous book, which is called Club Government. So I refer people to that. Apparently, Liz Truss had drinks. I wasn't quite clear from Tempest's book whether she had her drinks parties, but regular drinks parties, either in Lulu's basement of Five Hartford Street or in Five Hartford Street itself. But she appears to have been quite a clubby person. We're already speaking about her in the past tense, aren't we? I nearly said, I mean, I say this in an apolitical way, but I mean, much good it did her. Really. <laughs> it, it didn't seem to work, calling in those sort of, you know... Well, she did become Prime Minister. She did become Prime Minister, but, you know, not for long, as it were. Every time I want to conjure a scene, I say smoky rooms, but of course they aren't smoky anymore, are they? <laughs> but that is, we do have these images, I think, of cigar smoking in posh clubs and, and a fog of sort of, I suppose, sweet Afton in, in a, in a working club. That's how Tevos opens this book, really, by saying you probably think of a club as being like the following. Elderly, rich, white men sleeping on leather armchairs and cigar smoke and a fog of cigar smoke and port. He says that is not a modern club so much as a club in steep decline. So that yes. is his opening image. And that's what he says is if a club is like that, it's in trouble. Devos is actually um, a real clubman himself, I think. I don't know him personally, but he's the librarian of the National Liberal Club and appears to be a member of several smart clubs. And he looks at the clubs with a very beady eye. I mean, he's he is quite satirical about the clubs. And his, his book is quite is, is funny as well. I mean, both books are amusing in their way, but Devos is a bit of a comic turn. And he's got some nice stories about uh, how... It's said that the option in a club when deciding on new members was yes, no, and good God, no. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm sort of remembering all those kind of old episodes of Terry and June, where Terry's always trying to get into the Masons and being being blackballed and all, all that kind of thing. I mean, one thing that strikes me, because this conversation is making me feel real, sort of delightedly old, I suppose, but... I think of the young people of my acquaintance, I don't think any of them would really occur to them to join a club. If I said club, they'd probably think of Ibiza, I suppose. But it's not, Well, it doesn't seem to be something that they would really think of, or am I, am I again, hideously out of touch? Well, I would only say that my son, who is 27, I think, he is a member of the RAC club. I mean, initially, I think it was paid for by his grandfather, but now I think he's paying his own way there. And he, for a long time, at the moment he's not in Britain, but when he was, he would go there every morning for a swim and often go there for a drink in the evening. And the drink is cheap. I think the drink is often cheap. Ah, yes. The drink is cheap is a kind of siren. I mean, the drink is cheap, four words, much better than three words, Brexit sex done. I was going to say, yeah, if you were going to advertise, that's what you would use. 
it seems to me that they're also they're very resonant. This is a bit like what we were saying about Napoleon earlier. Strangely, they're resonant not only in history but in literature because Bertie Worcester, practically as you said, Alex, lives in his club. Around the world in eighty days begins and ends at the reform, and and that's very much flies betting on flies on on the window, and that's why he gets so kind of antsy, wants to go around the world, isn't it? They've got a very very strong literary presence, haven't they? The working men's clubs have a strong, well, not so much a literary presence, but a sort of televisual or theatrical presence. And there was a series on TV when I was growing up called The Comedians, which mm. were club comedians in a club setting and there was also a thing called the wheel tappers and shunters social club which was a kind of mock working men's club with colin crompton a very funny comedian as the chairman or whatever it's called the the master of ceremonies that was like a takeoff of working men's club and crompton's had several catchphrases he was the committee has had a meeting and it is a result and he would interrupt if, if people were booing the turns or something he would say she's doing her best leave her alone <laughs> much more kind of recently Phoenix Night, so it's not that recent now, but I'm going to bring in one final personal reminiscence. It's just some, actually what somebody told me of uh, a story of a club when somebody had bumped into a, a pal at the urinal and said, I've missed the turn. What was the turn like? And his pal replied, it was all right if you go in for laughing. <laughs> and I think that is a kind of slight doorness to them, which I find very sort of, Poignant and, and nice in a way. One of my fair bosses, he says, um, if you're in a club and you don't know who the club bore is, it's you. Oh, <laughs> oh God, that's a sort of cautionary this life is all lesson terrifying. for us all. I know. It's just as well that we're not in any clubs, isn't no, it, Lucy? It's just as well that we're impoverished literary types who <laughs> can't afford to even get in the door. <laughs> in final conclusion, get the sense that these are two books very different from one another that you really enjoyed. I did, yes. They're both fun and almost as good as being in the clubs. And you don't have to go out. <laughs> you don't have to go which out. Which is even better. Thank you so much, Andrew, for joining us. Thank you. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Alan Forrest and Andrew Martin. And thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Charlotte Pardy. We'll be back next week. But for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. 